You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. How's it going? Good. Everyone looks great and sunburned. I mean, sun-kissed and tan and so good. Um, well, I have a little story. You know, sometimes, I don't know if you guys are uh, ever give, like, talks or research papers or anything to, anything like that in, like, a story that maybe you've suppressed <laughs> or something, like, comes up and you're like, oh, I haven't thought about that in years. Well, it, it happened to me, and I want to share it with you. And if you went to elementary school with me, which I don't think any of you did, uh, this will be quite a confession. <laughs> but when I was in elementary school, uh, probably I think it was like second grade or something like that, um, I'm not going to lie, I was really fast. I was a fast running kid. I could beat like most people in the world, but <laughs> mostly in my elementary school. Um, and my PE teacher had this challenge that we were going to run the mile. Did you want to do the school mile? Right? It's like any, your name gets on the board. It's so great, right? So I didn't even have to like train for this. Like I was, I was really, really fast. So day of the big race, it was here. I ate my oatmeal, of course. I got my running clothes. I was ready to go. Not going to lie. I crushed it. I crushed the race. I first placed by a mile, I thought literally, um, as the expression goes. Um, and if it feels like I'm bragging, uh, I am. I was really a fast second grader. Um, when I finished, I had a great time, and I looked behind me, and I saw my classmates were, were pretty far behind me, and there were some cute girls in front that were, that were also fast, not as fast, but fast, um, and instead of cheering them on and being encouraging, I did the only sensible thing I could think of, and I started to make myself cough. I thought, man... This was kind of easy for me, but if I could make it look like it was harder, then I'd get some sympathy and possibly a hug from that cute girl over there. I literally faked having asthma. I, if you have asthma in here, I sincerely apologize. I, I, I was doubled over doing all the things, coughing. I did not have asthma. In fact, between coughs, as they were patting me on the back, I, I uttered out, I'd be like, it's just my asthma, like as I was doing it. <laughs> Absolute nonsense. So they took me to the school nurse, all for, all for a hug, all for attention. Nothing was real about it. Now, the thing that sparked in me when I remembered I had suppressed this story uh, was I was completely acting, right? Completely faking it and trying to make it look like it was something that it was not. Um, I was being what the Bible would call a hypocrite. Right? And we looked at this last week. Steve walked us through this. It's not like English where often we hear hypocrite, and it's like when you say I'm going to do something and then you do another thing. Steve had this definition up here with a hypocrite. It's from a Greek word. It's actually an actor under an assumed character or a stage player. So you're, actually, you're, you're faking. You're really acting a part. It's not really who you are. In the Sermon on the Mount, as we've seen, Jesus has not been interested in actors. He has no time for hypocrites who, regardless of the good they are doing, are building themselves up and essentially trying, whether consciously or not, to steal glory from God. This is the character behind this type of stage player. And Jesus spent the first 
part of this sermon speaking of the quality and characteristics of the people who God is searching for in the Beatitudes, the kinds of people that God wants to populate his kingdom with, the kinds of people he created in the beginning who have come back to him, a people who have recognized their sin and repented and turned back to God as their righteousness. Then Jesus has started to talk about these kinds of people and how they are to act out that pursuit of righteousness in their very lifestyle. And Jesus does this with a few categories like serving the needy, praying, we looked at this last week, fasting, our relationship to money, not being judgmental as we'll get into next week, and etc. And last week, Steve walked us through prayer, and I really encourage you, if you missed it, please go check it out. Thank you, Steve, for walking us through that. It's just an amazing prayer, and it really is kind of the centrality of the Sermon on the Mount. It kind of is this turning point then to center ourselves to now get into more of how we are to act. Um, So taking that cue, too, I want to pray now before we move on, if you would join me. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to just sit under your words, sit under the teachings of your son Jesus as your followers did long ago, um, God. And we just pray simply that you, your will be done today. God, you are real. We believe in you um, and we, we submit to you um, and your love and your grace today. Thank you for your word um, and we pray in your name. Amen. All right, so let's get into it. Verse 16 of chapter 6. And Jesus said to his disciples, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So let's observe a few things. Um, Is it if you fast, if you have time and you have the conviction, what is it? When you fast. Okay, Jesus says, when you fast, because this was not a lost practice like it is now. Um, This was built into the very DNA and lives of the Jewish people. Fasting was regular for first century Jews. It's incredible to read about. We don't have time to get into the long history of various stories of fasting, but it was primarily a practice of abstaining from food specifically, and sometimes drink, but primarily food. And there's other forms of abstinence that are good, right? Not going without all sorts of things, right? That's healthy and good for us. But fasting specifically is almost always referring to food. The main idea of fasting was to practice physical suffering for a spiritual purpose to be reminded of the fragility of human life and the dependence not on ourselves to provide, but for something greater and eternally lasting than going from just one meal to another. Why do we have to eat? Why do we have to keep eating? Right, Because it does not last. Biblical fasting is always centered towards a spiritual purpose, not primarily physical, mental, or emotional. Fasting isn't about getting anything from God. It's about giving yourself to God. It's an offering. And here's the thing. True fasting is hard. Fasting hurts, and it should hurt. Now, listen, I, I do want to say this caveat, um, as I, because I am a big fan of fasting, and I love the Lenten season, and 
and it's a practice that isn't been a big part of my life, to be honest, um, but I've always been fascinated by it and always kind of wanted to dive more into it. Um, and I would never put down any form of this, any form of fasting as a practice, because people at any level trying to pursue God and trying to pursue knowing God is incredible. I will always applaud that. Um, but here's, I have a hot take. <laughs> I have a hot take for you. Reducing fasting during Lent or whenever, um, whenever you do it down to not looking at social media, which I've done, not drinking alcohol, which I've done, not doing TV shows, not looking at your phone, whatever, you fill in the blank. Again, if that works for you to pursue God, great. But reducing fasting to just that means if you think that that is suffering, then it means that our life is extremely comfortable extremely comfortable. Most things that we fast from are things we could go our whole life without, and listen, it won't matter at all. In fact, I would argue for most of the things that we fast from, abstain from, I should say, that would actually make our life better in the long run. But what's more revealing, and I believe one of the main points of fasting, is that we're equating virtually meaningless things as our daily bread. That we ju- we're saying these things we just can't live without like it's food, like it's the air that we breathe. What you choose to fast from is actually revealing what you feel has a hold over you. It reveals a dependency on what man has made and deemed essential rather than f- what focusing on God as creator and sustainer of all things. But the goal is to try to go without the essential need for life, which is food. Because it's actually harmful if you go too long with it in the long run. You can't just give up food altogether for the rest of your life. You will not survive. Spoiler alert. Your fasting should cause discomfort. But Jesus is getting after that fasting is not a sign of self-righteousness, or in my case, fake asthma, but an encouragement in the community and true worship. If anything, choosing fasting is choosing joy in God, not in the desires of God the flesh. It's saying no to being a slave to whatever the body desires and feasting on God's presence and goodness in our lives. That brings a smile, not this disfigured face that Jesus brings up. Jesus says, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. Basically, that it's not just a special thing. This is the ancient equivalent of just basic hygiene. <laughs> you know, take a shower once in a while. Jesus is encouraging going about their regular life when they are fasting. Make it a regular life thing, not a huge show. Fasting is not just for the spiritually elite. Remember, God is Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's not just with us when we fast. He's not just with us when we climb to the top of a mountain or pray really hard or fast for 40 days. All those things might help us get less distracted and be more attentive. There's a lot of science behind that, a lot of spirituality behind that, which is so great and cool. But he desires his people to have regular habits that recompass their hearts towards God. Now, again, Jesus is always pointing people back to how it's always been. This is not a new teaching. This is not something new. He's actually using very similar language to the prophet Isaiah when God used him to call out true and false fasting. I want to let Isaiah speak for him. This is Isaiah 58, verse 2 to 4. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. 
Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice be heard on high. That's intense, right? God used Isaiah to be his mouthpiece to the people coming out of exile. And we can see this has always been an issue with God's people. Hey, God, we made time for you. We did this thing for you, but where were you? We expected great things because we took the time and you owe us now, right? That line, in the days of your fast, you seek your own pleasure. That's brutal. (laughs) This should be a convicting sentence. There are many ways that trying to follow God by some form of abstinence has good intentions, but in the end, it really is a means to our own end. Case in point, there was not really a commandment to fast regularly, except for the whole community at Yom Kippur, which is their day of atonement, um, and for the Jews, but it was more of a beautiful invitation to the opportunity to, in worship of God, be aware of the body and its cravings. What has gripped the flesh by abstaining from it and seeking eternal sustenance from God alone. See, God made us not just with bodies, but He made us as bodies and said it was good. How our body is doing and what is going on with our cravings is super important to following. God. Now, here was the issue. Some of the religious leaders, especially in Jesus' day, turned fasting into more of a command and a law, and showing it off being the the hypocrites or actors that Jesus is referring to. Some of the more pious Pharisees, they started fasting up to twice a week, which others have done, and that was actually a practice in the early church for a long time, Um, but they made it a self-righteous, legalistic endeavor, right? The practice was good, but it wasn't out of worship for God, or really intentionally putting a stop to the tyranny of the flesh. It was just for attention and praise. And there, there was a form and a place for more severe fasts. This was later called asceticism, which was categorized as severe levels of self-discipline for spiritual purposes. Maybe some of you have done something like that, a really elongated fast or, or something like that. But this was being abused by the religious leaders for the show of it. The Apostle Paul comments on these self-righteous regulations. Colossians 2 said, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Being aware of and putting a check on the indulgence of the flesh, that is the goal. So Jesus is telling his followers to do this for the glory of God, not for the glory of self. But again, Isaiah 58 just says it, and this is a little bit, little bit longer, but I think there's, there's no way to say it better. This is the rest of Isaiah 58. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? Listen to this. To loose the bonds of wickedness to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? 
Then shall your lights break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. And you shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst and point the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. What a line. And make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters does not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up from the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Man, can we just memorize that as a community? Isaiah reveals that fasting is not just a personal practice that helps you get better at life. Fasting is kind of this, this empathic way to be with God and his creation that is broken. We feel that too. Fasting is to choose to enter into this grief and mourning over heaven, not being fully yet here. But fasting is also this incredible practice of joy, that even in that suffering, there is hope. There's a light in the darkness. God's people get to step into the gap where that breach is and repair it. God's people get to be witnesses and partners in the restoration of the streets for all to dwell in. And Church of Fasting can help reorient our hearts toward this vision, then why would we not? Why would we not try to make this in whatever way it makes sense to make it a practice? This is an incredible vision and practice that Jesus is leading his followers into. Now, there's much more to be said, and by you go look up other smarter people about fasting, but this feeds into our next session because one thing that the practice of fasting brings to light is what we've been placing our hope and security in, what our bodies, mind, and soul have relied on. Jesus calls this our treasures. It is to what we have given our heart to to be the sustainer of the type of life we want. Verse 19, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So Jesus juxtaposes two kind of entities here that we could point our hearts towards, earth or heaven. Earth, material wealth in money and things that could be taken away. And there were three common enemies there. Moth, rust, and thieves. Anyone here fear these things? Not like super typically for us, right? But think, remember, this is first century Israel. There are a few things that are highly valuable. Clothing, for one, wasn't as accessible then as the insane amount of stores that we have today. Obviously, they had clothes. But um, if their heart was geared towards having possessions of clothing or certain types of furniture or bedding, this could all be taken away in one night from moths, right? Just instantly. Some theologians and historians also believe moths here could be referring to crops as well. If you're a first century farmer, your crop is your livelihood. But if moths may be referring to some sort of locust or plague in this situation, then it could all be taken away. 
Similarly, rust is the corrosion of something, right? Metal was highly valuable as it withstood more than wood or brick, but if metal was rusted through, it was useless. Rust could also include mildew or uh, walls falling apart due to corrosion or even destruction by rodents. Even something valuable, hard and shiny could be reduced to nothing. It was common for ancient Israel to have hardened mud brick homes, which could be cut into without a ton of effort with any sharp tool. Thieving wasn't uncommon. It wouldn't be difficult to get into someone's home, right? So you kind of get into their mindset when they're hearing this. It's very real for them, very real example. So right there, Jesus just kind of covered all areas that someone could have stored up possessions and how they could then be taken away. And Jesus is saying for his followers to not put their heart into these areas. Do not store up for yourselves in this way. Remember when we had the fires uh, back in 2020 here? And I know it wasn't, for some of you, you've been through, you know, really horrific fire stories. But for me and my family, even though it didn't, it didn't come to Albany, um, it was kind of the first time that, that Christy and I legitimately kind of questioned, all right, if we had to vacate, what would we take? What's actually valuable to us in this? And it, it was a hard conversation, you know. Um, it, was, it was really interesting what forever possessions that we thought we could not go without. Um, but at the end of the day, our deep desire was to be beyond preference and to be able to lose everything and still be okay. To have a posture that as we live on this earth with things and stuff, which that in itself isn't necessarily bad, but to count it all as loss compared to recompassing our hearts to heavenly treasures that could never be taken away. If that is the focus and the question becomes, well, what should I focus on? Then you go back to the salt and the light, back to the Beatitudes. What does a life-giving life look like? These are identity-shaping characteristics that cannot be taken away from you to please your Father in heaven. And the question has become, how can you see clearly what, what should be important or not? How can we see and know the deep desires of our hearts and compass them correctly towards God? Well, Jesus continues, verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, oh, how great is the darkness. Remember back in chapter 5, Jesus tells his followers that they are the light of the world, saying in, in 5.15, Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. The light is always meant to be shown. Jesus then used the example of house, and here he uses the example of body, now as encompassing everything from community broad to an individual level. It's, it's obvious when you th really think about it, but the eyes are the only part of your body that can distinguish between light and darkness. When I think about it, if you didn't have eyes, how would you know if it was light or darkness? There's no other sense that can perceive this. Now, this is certainly anatomically true, but metaphorically, Jesus is using the eye as a reference point to gauge where the heart is at. Rabbis of old used to use the phrase, the evil eye, to categorize utter selfishness, envy, or coveting behavior. So the good eye must be the opposite, radical generosity with a pure heart or pure intentions. And I think in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount alone, the eyes are an underrated component of faithfulness, right? Think back to a couple of the big examples Jesus has said. Chapter 5, verse 28, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, we covered a few weeks ago, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
Chapter 6, 5, and when you pray, you must be not like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And then in our passage, six seventeen, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. Right? None of these would mean anything if no one had eyes. These are all things that are seen and then desired or coveted, whether it's sinful like the lust example or, or more right in action but without pure intentions. Now, this, this example gets overused, and maybe you've heard it before, but just think about our, we, we live in a generation and age of social media, right? It's very prevalent. It's very big. Whatever platform you use, Instagram, TikTok, whatever, it just, it grieves my heart, too, for myself and for a lot of people I talk to. Insane amounts of envy and comparison happens on those things, doesn't it? All right, most people don't just like photos or videos. They want to also have those experiences and feel bad about their seemingly less than experiences. And I don't know if you've had this experience where you've, you've known someone or friends which are portrayed on social media to just have the best life. They're just crushing it in all aspects of life and parenting and all sorts of stuff. And then you hang out with a person, and it turns out they're just crumbling. They are just crushed by the weight, but they capture that one best moment of the day, you know, and that's what they get to share with the world. That comparison, that envy, everything, that came from our own eyes, seeing it, right, which then gripped our heart and then which, which, which goes into the desires that the person that we have in our hearts. What we set our eyes on is very important. The eyes are connected to the desires of the heart. And this works both ways. What comes through the eyes into the heart and what comes from the heart through how we see. Right? If our heart is full of life because it's been completely renovated by God, then it's by the vision of light that we get to see the world. And we get to see the world through the lens of light, which reveals darkness. Right? You can start to see the areas in your own life and others in the world where there is darkness because that's what light does. It shines in the darkness. But if our heart is full of darkness, then we'll view the world as ours to control and gain lead, lead, ours to control and gain, leading us to having a vision of selfishness and dark desires and then seeing where the light is with our own eyes and be adverse to it because we don't want it to be found out. But the good eye, full of light, is a purposeful life a life of singular focus, with hearts being transformed by the light of God through Jesus, then everything else is purposefully redirected and bring that light to the world. Which naturally leads us into what is leading your life, or in the language Jesus uses, he uses actually slavery language here, who, you, who is your master. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You guys doing okay? I know it's a lot. It's good. Get some coffee if you need it. Real quick, money translation here is really interesting, right? The original word here is mammon, and maybe I just, I just butchered that translation, but ma mammon, mammon. Some scholars believe mammon to the worldly is, a, is actually a worldly deity that, that was believed. It's like a lowercase g god, and it's a god of material, wealth, things, that kind of stuff, right? Some believe this word is actually from the Hebrew word haman, which means to trust or confide. In this context, it would be in a trust in self or a confide in self. And really, either way, 
uh, mammon or money. In our translation today, it doesn't just mean greenbacks. Like, don't read money and think, you know, actual cash or bank accounts or Bitcoin or whatever you think. But in a larger sense, right, it just means material wealth or riches here on earth. Right? These things can all be okay. And these things have a purpose for God's kingdom. But if they are being served as Lord, then they have become the idol. Right? One commenter I read wrote this chilling line, Make no mistake, you will sacrifice for your God. Have you ever found yourself sacrificing for more money? For more, bigger, better stuff? For that promotion? And again, not an indictment on working hard and pursuing goals, but the challenge is this. Do we sacrifice for Jesus with the same or more fervor than we would do for those other things? And that's just a good heart check a good mind check. Remember the rich young ruler, we're not going to get into it, but go read Mark 10 today. Go read Mark 10 and Jesus is talking to this man who had everything and he followed the commandments. He had the righteousness in front of God and God, Jesus asked him to give up all of his stuff and he walked away upset. He walked away because he could not fully commit to God. Now, let me ask this. It doesn't necessarily have to be a sin issue, but have you ever felt like something kind of like owns you in a way? Right? It's, a, it's a weird question, but something you just can't fight. You just can't escape. It's always there, always pressing to get what it wants through you. Or, ha- or maybe another way to say it, have you have, ever had something in your life that you thought, well, it's just one little area of my life, whatever it's a thought or an action or whatever. It's not really affecting anyone else, so I just won't worry about it right now because other areas of my life are going well. We justify it because it seems smaller than our heart's desire to follow God, because that's our true, deepest heart desire, but it's still there. And listen, anything can become a God-level thing if we let it take control. It doesn't matter how small it is. Jesus uses this language in saying, not just his followers or you and me, but no one can serve two masters. And listen, there was a long history of ancient Israel, especially in the northern kingdom, if you go back and read all that when they tried to worship both God and idols. And there's this awesome and convicting story, I just have to tell you guys, um, that that actually has to deal with Israel's enemies, the Philistines. Just just follow along. But Israel had this great battle with the Philistines. The Philistines were going against them. The Philistines were actually, like, just kicking their high knees. They were winning. And so the the Israelites, this is what it says, 1 Samuel 4, they asked for the Ark Ark of the Covenant to come out. And they say this, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So they're they're just getting hammered, and they say, oh, bring out the Ark of the Covenant. It's like our secret weapon. Or, like, we're going to wield this power now, okay? So they brought the Ark out with a resounding yell like it was some superpower, and this is, this is uh, uh, verse 6. And when they learned, when the Philistines, when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are not believers in this, but they knew this was a God. These are the gods who struck down the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Anyone know who won? Okay, the Philistines won. Philistines, like, just crushed them. They went on and they won. And they actually slaughtered many Israelites, which is really sad, and they stole the Ark of the Covenant for themselves. So, like, okay, this is mine now. And they take it. And then 1 Samuel 5. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God. This is the whole point of the story. It's all tying together. Don't worry. 
<laughs> then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Okay? So Dagon was the national god of the Philistines. He was god of fertility and a couple other things, one of their chief gods that they worshipped. Listen to this. 1 Samuel 5.3. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they put him back to his place. Verse 4, but when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon, both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Amazing, huh? Like, that's incredible. Like, coincidence? I think not. Right? The reason I love this story is because the Israelites in this moment, they thought the ark was the power, not the God behind it. The Philistines actually had more faith that this was a god, not just a power to wield or an idol. But ironically, they also thought they could add this god to their collection of gods, and this was not to be. Their main god was found bowing down before Yahweh daily. And eventually, if you finish the story in your own time, the Ark of the Covenant gave them so much grief and death, they actually just gave it back. It's amazing. They're like, just, just take it back. We don't want it. The whole point here, the whole tie-in, is that God will not be mocked. He either is the master or he is not. Even to the enemies of Israel, God had no rival. To serve two masters is to actually have no master. It's not possible with God. When we read lines like Exodus 34 or 14, and you shall worship no other God for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. This can sound weird, but not when it's coupled with love and devotion. God is asking for full devotion from his people. He's jealous to be our one and only God, and God doesn't share his throne. So no one can serve two masters. Jesus is revealing that God is after the whole devoted person. Now, if it seems like a lot. We've, this is a, I, I, we said this a few weeks ago. All these sermons on the Mount sections could all be their own sermon, each little line. It's a lot. I, I totally understand. And if it feels like this is just a lie and you're just feeling maybe anxiousness in your body or maybe you're just like, man, I got to go eat lunch. Can you be done? You know, I, whatever it is, fear not. For Jesus moves into a teaching about anxiety. <laughs> Perfect. And we'll end with this. And it's very naturally because if humans have been following a certain way of life dependent on things that could be taken away or destroyed or realistically given their heart to something other than God, which is idolatry, they, f they find themselves to be quite anxious. Right? especially when it's being called out. When the rocky foundations of what we've built our life on is unveiled to not be that great or it could be altogether swept out from under our feet, there's totally the intense moments of anxiety because it's true to what it is. It's a loss of control. We think we can control our lives by building it this way, and when it's all taken away, we actually have no control. Now, real talk, real quick. Um, I completely understand anxiety can also be a, like a real medical condition. Um, I don't think Jesus is talking about like clinical anxiety or depression here, but specifically the kind of anxiety that inevitably comes with desiring riches of this world to be their Lord. Okay, this is the anxiousness he's talking about. And there's a certain hustle and grind with co that comes with that kind of life that causes much worry and anxiety to always be hungry and never be filled. And Jesus taught his followers to give up building their own life. In fact, later on, he would just flat out say it, Matthew 16, 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
Anybody have anxiety now about losing your life, right? In like a, in like a very spiritual sense of really giving up the things that are gripping you. It, it should cause a little bit of that. Let the wor Lord's words here be a blessing of peace upon us. Verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of life? In fact, and I'll just interject here, as you guys probably know, but studies have shown um, almost unanimously that high anxiety and worry can have the opposite effect. You can actually lose years on your life and have a lower life expectancy from that. Verse 28, and why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Right, Gentiles has usually been used the term for the, kind of generally just the world, right? Everyone else in the world seeks all these things and has anxiety to try and find the God that serves them best. But you, you were to be holy because your God is holy. Jesus literally just said last, last time, you'd be perfect because your God is perfect. We're called to be set apart from the world for something better, not the same grind. And this is the call, church. Verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Guys, this is the call. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This isn't just like avoid all that other stuff kind of talk. This is a do something different kind of talk. Actually put these words of Jesus into practice. And I get it, it's a lot. Jesus taught about uncovering what's really going on within his people at a heart level in our bodies with fasting, like what's actually happening there. Where are we being hypocritical or actors in our faith? Where are we placing our actual heart desires, treasures, our true heart desires, and ultimately who's actually Lord of our life? And if that does not bring up anxiety in you, <laughs> I don't know what is. And no wonder he ends with, don't be anxious. And if you're feeling at all anxious, at all at war with yourself, at all unclear of what the next steps are, you're actually in a good place. Because what it's doing, it's actually shaking the foundation of things that have gripped your heart that are not of God. If you're actually feeling a little bit of, of, of oh, I don't know if I want to give that up, I don't know, this kind of thing, that's a good thing to wrestle with. And here's what we need to hear. If you're in that place, in that good place, seek first the kingdom of God, which means repent from whatever kingdom you've built for yourself, knowingly or unknowingly. We're most blind to ourselves. A lot of times it's unknowingly. But to intentionally and actively seek his kingdom come, his will be done. And seek his righteousness. 
which means repent from the self-righteousness we're tempted to present to God and others and how awesome we are and how great we're doing. But it is Christ's righteousness that is our only foundation for being the people of God. Humans have a lot going on every day, and God's mercy and grace is new every day. Today may have worries. Trust in God. There is grace. And tomorrow may have worries. Then we can rest, be rest assured that there will be a new full measure of grace waiting for us. Thank you, guys. I want to list. I want to end with the, the prophet Jeremiah, who the book of Lamentations is attributed to as he writes this prayer that we can kind of speak over our anxieties as we move to respond today as Jesus is Lord. This is Lamentations chapter 3, 22 to 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Amen.